Hi, I'm Don Mackey, welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting-edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org. Welcome to this episode of Pathways to Rural Prosperity. This is Don Mackey with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, and I will be your host for today's podcast. I am delighted to have Andy Stoll with me from the UN Marion Kaufman Foundation. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, delighted. I'm glad we finally got connected. I appreciate you making some time to be my guest today. Our topic is really Andy has been engaged in ecosystem building, one of the leaders with Kauffman Foundation's eShip Summits. And so we're really looking forward to getting your, your insights and perspectives on ecosystem building, as well as your connection with Ord. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here, Don. You know, I look at a lot of the work that I've been doing for almost 20 years, and you and a number of other people are sort of the godfathers of that work. So it's just an honor and a privilege to get to join you on your podcast and and, and also, in a way, you know, take what you've done and, and all the work that E2 has been able to build over the last 20, 30 years and find ways to use it in communities across the country. So super excited to be here. Yeah. Well, and you're always so kind. Thank you. And it's been fun. You've been around the tree a few times, too, despite your youth. And I always like to start, Andy, with having my guests just share a little bit about their journey. And so would you be willing to share a bit about how you've gotten from where you were to where you are today with the foundation. Sure thing. So my roots are in the Midwest, as we'll come back to, I think, later. I was actually born in Nebraska, in Omaha, and I ended up going to the University of Iowa, which is in Iowa City, it's three hours or so from Omaha, for those who are new to U.S. geography. But the story that sort of sets up really the career trajectory I've been on starts actually in college. I accidentally founded a, what today you would call a social entrepreneurial incubator in college. We didn't have any of those words, but that's looking back on it, what you would call it. And I think it's worth visiting that story just to kind of understand what we're talking about when we mean ecosystem building, when we say ecosystem building, and, and then how it sort of leads to today. So we were a bunch of energetic, enthusiastic, creative young people. And we had all peaked a little early in college or in student activities. And, and what I mean by that is we'd all sort of been president or whatever of our respective student organizations. And it was a group of friends, about seven of us. And we didn't know what we were going to do. We all had a year left of school. And, you know, I'd run the student movie theater and another friend had been one of the editors of the paper. And, you know, another one that had been in the theater department, he was the lead in all the plays. And, and, we were sitting around over the summer doing what college kids do, which is sit around and hang out and probably had a beverage in hand. And we were talking about all the cool, creative people we knew in our respective areas. But because we came from across campus, we, we just knew different people that didn't know each other. So, so we had this sort of simple idea, which is, man, we all know these creative, interesting people across campus, but they don't know each other. What could we do about that? So we're college kids. We don't know a ton of ways to help, but we do know one, which is we know how to throw parties. So we invited all of those people to a series of potluck dinners. And halfway through that, those dinners, they were just like every other college potluck dinner, you know, cheap beer, box wine, you know, everyone brings, brings a bag of chips. 
And halfway through the party, though, we made everyone get in the living room and go around the circle and say, what are you excited about? What are you passionate about? What's your creative talent? And so people would say, well, no, my name's Andy. I love filmmaking. My name's Mike. I have a band and, you know, I'm looking for a drummer. And inevitably somebody where later would say, my name's Mandy and I'm a drummer and I'm looking for a band. And then they'd start forming bands and they'd come to us and they'd say, hey, you know, we met at your party and now have this band, but we don't know where to play. And you seem to know everybody, you know, we can play. And we said, well, we could probably figure that out. So we rented a room in the basement of the student union. We asked 10 people from the party to perform their creative endeavor, whether that's music or magic or stand-up comedy. And, and at that event, we thought 10 people would show up, their partners, spouses, girlfriend, boyfriend, we would go. There'd probably be 20 of us. It'd be pretty cool. We thought, oh, we'll charge five bucks to get in, give it to charity, and it'll be a great event, you know? And it ended up attracting about 125 people. We raised $500 for the women's shelter. And more importantly, there was this explosion of creative energy. And everyone was like, hey, are you going to do this again? Because I got a talent. I got a creative idea. I got a thing I work on. And so that became a whole series of events, which if you fast forward and skip a bunch of the story, four years, it became a nonprofit organization called the James Gang that was really built around cultivating people with creative ideas that built the community. And the idea there was in most communities, there's lots of people with creative ideas, but they don't know how to make them happen. And especially the ones that are community oriented, if they, if you went to the chamber in, in that town and said, hey, I want to start a local music festival, they would probably say, great, that's not really what we do, good luck. And so the James Gang vets you and vets your idea. And then they don't do your idea for you, but they bring you into a network of other entrepreneurs working on their ideas. And what we quickly learned, and this is sort of where it sets me off on this career path, was we were a bunch of 21-year-old kids that didn't know how to help entrepreneurs that well. But what we realized, if we introduced the entrepreneurs to each other, we cultivated a, a culture of collaboration and trust and dreaming big and taking risks and trying new things. And then we connected those entrepreneurs to esteemed leaders in the community, often older, who had access to money and networks and knew how to get stuff done in that community, that you could take seemingly you know, sort of crazy ideas and they could be manifest into reality. And so that was 20 years ago. And that was my introduction to what today we called entrepreneurial ecosystems and entrepreneurial ecosystem building. Of course, we didn't have any of those words at that time. And then for me, it became this obsession around this really one question, which is how do you cultivate the conditions in a community that allow entrepreneurship, creativity, and innovation to thrive in a community? What actually do and a decade and a half later, I happened to be at the Coffin Foundation and, and got in a conversation. And they said, you know, we think this is the future of economic and community development, this thing you've been playing around with. And I had never thought about it that way, but, but that's how I ended up landing at the foundation. And then, you know, I think of your story and many of our friends that we've worked with, we've sort of all been on these individual journeys. But as it turns out, it's like the future of how our communities sort of prosperity will be built is through these, some of these core ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about the collisions in your story about that potluck dinner that Maria Myers and Kate Hodel talk about in their book and how that can create synergy. Last week, Andy, I was 
up in Holt County for a gathering of Nebraska entrepreneurial communities from across rural Nebraska. It was really exciting. And part of the time we were in O'Neill and at a place called Handlebends. And it speaks to your point about entrepreneurship and community building. Two young men out of college, not sure what they want to do. They wanted to go back home. They too enjoyed a drink every once in a while in college. And they got really interested in copper mugs and discovered that most copper mugs you buy for a Moscow mule aren't solid. They're metal with copper plating. So anyway, long story short, these guys are now manufacturing and selling all over the world solid copper mugs. But when they were looking for a place for their shop, they found this old grocery store that had been empty for 20 years. They convinced the family to let them have it with the idea that they would honor the entrepreneurial family that built this building and operated a grocery store and creamery and and meat locker for years. And now it has a coffee shop, it has a bar, it's it's got a gift shop, it's got a meeting space. And you just have this feeling that this is where the community comes to talk and get inspired. And they really didn't need all those other things, but they wanted the building and they go, well, we've got this other space, what can we do with it to make the community better? Really neat. I think that story points to two things, sort of the contagiousness of entrepreneurship and creativity that once somebody sort of turns an idea in their head to a thing, they they both, they want to continue it, but other people are like, well, wait, hey, hey they, they did that. I could do that too. But I also think the the other piece is just how probably over the last 20 years, location matters so much less because of technology and connectivity that you can be in O'Neill, Nebraska or wherever and you can have an idea and you can have access to the tools and the resources. But the challenge ultimately being not all places have the culture and the network of people and humans who help nudge the entrepreneurs or people with ideas along, but that if you have that community, it sort of, like I said, becomes contagious. And it doesn't, I don't actually, I'm not sure how big O'Neill is, but I can't imagine it's so huge, but they're able to basically start a global copper mug company in this relatively small town in the middle of Nebraska. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a few thousand people. It's kind of like Ord, not much bigger, or maybe a little bigger than Ord, but not much. So you mentioned your Nebraska roots. Of course, our audience knows that I claim Nebraska is my home. You've got both a Western Nebraska and an Eastern Nebraska connection. Just share a little bit, if you would. Sure. Yeah. You know, my family is, I was born in Omaha, which is largely in Nebraska. And but my, my family roots go back in two opposite directions. So my great-grandparents on my mother's side are, were actually from Japan. And they immigrated, my great-grandfather immigrated in like the early 1900s to the U.S. to work on the preparing the Transcontinental Railroad after the U.S. federal government banned Chinese immigrants who were working on the railroad. They brought in Japanese immigrants. And so he traveled across the country and, and ended up in Nebraska and my understanding is sort of went AWOL from the from the railroad company and ended up finding a place in Nebraska where there were some other Japanese folks and then asked, sent a letter home to his parents and said, I know I'm supposed to make a bunch of money and come home, but I've, I've decided to stay. Could you send me a wife? And so my great grandmother came over as a mail order bride on a steamship, didn't speak any English and came to Nebraska and had, I think it's nine kids and there's a surprisingly large and historic Japanese community in Western Nebraska in the middle of the sand, like just almost seemingly nowhere, which is an interesting story in another podcast for another time. And then my father's side immigrated 
from Germany. My great grandfather on that side was a merchant marine in the German merchant marine and, and jumped ship in New Orleans and made his way had some family in Oklahoma and was a blacksmith. And so made his way eventually to Nebraska. And my parents met at the University of Nebraska in the 60s and built a life in Nebraska and Omaha. And so I've got roots on, on actually both sides of the state. And people are often find it surprising that a person that looks like me comes from Nebraska. And I said, Nebraska is surprisingly diverse more than more than most people realize. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there is a pretty interesting story and as your interest in filmmaking, your family story would be wise. And I can't blame your ancestor for leaving the railroad and, and finding a different life. It was really brutal for the workers on the railroad during that period, at least based on what I've read. Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating story. And I think it's a reminder about, you know, the immigrant history of our country in many, many ways and many waves. And I think back to what it would be like to get on a steamship in Tokyo in 1905 with no cell phones and no Google and you don't even speak English. So when I get stressed out about going to like Europe, I'm like, I'm like trying to calm myself down and be like, well, my great grandmother got on a steamship, so I could probably do this. So to pivot a little bit, you've been very instrumental in providing leadership for the foundation's e-ship summits. And if I remember right, there were four. We did some of those live, some of those were Zoom because they were during covid and so I want you to kind of speak about that, but then connect it with this new initiative around the Ecosystem Building Leadership Network. You shared a bit of your story when we did the orientation with the leadership team for that, but the idea behind the ESIP summits and now this new initiative that maybe I'm getting it wrong, but it seems to me builds on that work and hopefully can systematize it a bit more as we go forward. So I told you a little bit about how I ended up at the foundation. I actually went there with a group that I helped start a nonprofit called the Startup Champions Network, which is probably the first professional association for people building entrepreneurial ecosystems. That group was founded in 2013. And actually at the beginning, didn't even call it entrepreneurial ecosystems. I think they were at that time were called innovation ecosystems, which is, a, again, another whole separate podcast, but just showing you how nascent and new this way of, of sort of leading is. So I was invited by the folks at the Coffin Foundation to join and help lead a new strategy there around entrepreneurial ecosystem building and really thinking about it as a new emerging approach in economic development. So traditional economic development, mostly attraction and retention based. There's obviously clusters and there was some entrepreneurship efforts within economic development in the 80s. But ecosystem building is a sort of the way to sort of distinguish it from all that came before is it is entrepreneurial focused or entrepreneurship entrepreneur led but it's systems level thinking so we're not just thinking about the incubators and the a incubator a accelerator a venture fund but like how do all those things work together so that's what i sort of accidentally been doing with a co-founder and actually in based based out eastern iowa working in some communities there and show up to foundation and they say hey you know this thing you've been doing we think it's the future of economic development or a very promising practice at least. And so I joined in 2017 and the foundation obviously has a long history of supporting entrepreneurship, you know, historically, a lot of it through public policy and research, but more recently through helping almost run alongside communities and help them support entrepreneurs through the One Million Cups program, the Fast Track program and other grant programs that we have. But what the question really was in 2017 was this idea of systems level sort of work to build the entire system of support in your community work, obviously, that you pioneered, Don, with other folks through what is now E2, 
and folks like Maria Myers and Dell and Steve Radley and the folks at SourceLink, et cetera, could we find 500 people who were thinking and doing and acting <laughs> this way? You know, and the yeah. question was like, literally, could we find them? And what would happen if we brought them together? And what was really fascinating to sort of be totally transparent is like the Coffin Foundation didn't even have a good list. Like I had my list, obviously you had your list. And so in 2017, as you'll recall, it was the first time we really probably corresponded. I reached out to you and said, hey, I'm in the foundation. We're trying to get together people building ecosystems. Can you send me a list of your of the people who you think are doing it best, the best? And we reached out to 53 organizations. We asked them to each submit 10 of like the black belt best who's really doing it. And we got about 600 people to show up at the first Eastship Summit in 2017. And the whole idea was what happens if we just got those folks together? What happened, as you'll recall, is there was a lot of energy explosion at that first event. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people who were working in either complete isolation or somewhat isolation, or at least within their own sector, like whether it's economic development, community development, venture capital, accelerators, suddenly they're in this room with 500 other people who were thinking and acting in the same way through, you know, it's important at Coffee Foundation to really center equity and inclusion. It's really important for the economy too. And so the folks at that event, I think were a bit surprised at like all the folks that were there. I don't, I'd be curious to hear your take on it. But what we also discovered in that is like everyone was using their own set of language. There was basically very little consensus on just basic elements. Like what do you even call this stuff, this way of helping entrepreneurs how do you do it? What are the steps? How do you measure it? How does one get paid to do this? Where does it fit within an economic or community development strategy? I mean, all of these interesting questions. And so we spent the next four years trying to create an annual space where people could come and really, because there are no experts in this stuff, create a space where peer-to-peer learning could happen. Because I think at this point, there's, you know, everyone's like, well, send me the best practices. And I say, well, you know, we don't, we haven't figured that out yet. I mean, there's some good practices, there's promising practices, but we're, you know, a lot of what E2, I think, puts out, I would call promising practices. And so over the course of four years, brought together almost 1,500 people from different sectors and parts of the community across the United States, some folks from around the world, to say this is actually an emerging practice, an emerging profession, and an emerging approach in economic development, community development, workforce development, and obviously entrepreneurial development. But there's still a lack of just general consensus of what we're even trying to do here. And so over the course of four years, again, tried to tried to service some of those promising practices, so tried to better understand who was doing what and where, and create an ecosystem of ecosystem builders, if you will. And what really came out of that, among many things, is a set of sort of things that we collectively believe are needed if this is going to become a permanent and effective practice. And so we call those the eShip goals. And within the subset of those eShip goals, which was really derived from input from people doing this type of work across the country, was the need for a, I'm going to say entity, and I'm being specifically vague there, a thing to help really steward and lead the field, the professional field of entrepreneurial ecosystem building, which sits in all sorts of sectors. It's, It's economic development, community development, venture capital, angel capital, accelerators, incubators. I mean, we got libraries talking about entrepreneurial ecosystem building, right? But there isn't a place where all those sectors come together where consensus is built across them. Because in a local community, if you zoom into like, say, Omaha or Des Moines, all those sectors have to work together too. the local library, the foundations, the government, the chamber. So this ecosystem, ecosystem building leadership project came out of the need for there to be somebody that could build upon the work that the Coffin Foundation had done to gather folks together. That wasn't the Coffin Foundation. 
I think the timing was right for us to bring folks together. There's also reasons that a foundation should not leave that over the long run. And so Charles Ross at MBIA stepped forward about a year and a half ago and said, hey, we would be willing to host on behalf of the many organizations this conversation of what this sort of leadership entity thing would look like. And so Charles Ross, Del Gines, who's with the Federal Reserve in Kansas City, Kristen Lutz, who is an ecosystem builder and foundation executive of the East Coast, Massachusetts, is helping to co-chair. There's another dozen people in the sort of team there. And then they've built a coalition of about 30 other people, I believe, including you, Don, that are trying to have input. And the goal here is when this ecosystem building leadership project phase one is done by the end of the year, there will be some sort of easier way or almost a backbone organization to help create, coordinate, collaborate, and advance the field of entrepreneurial ecosystem building for everyone in the United States and across these sectors and really can put a long-term focus on the things the field needs so that people in local communities, probably the listeners of this podcast, can have the things they need so they can do the work in the community, ultimately helping more entrepreneurs in more places. Yeah, absolutely. And and first of all, thank you and the foundation for the summits. I know for those of us who've been involved in this, it was great. I mean, I met so many people. I had no clue they were out there, what they were doing. I think of the connections that are ongoing from that. And now with this new initiative to kind of sustain that work, that's really powerful because you're absolutely right. I know in rural America, the vast majority of the people that are out there dealing with us every day, innovating, they're pretty isolated. And to have these peer relationships to be able to learn just to talk through what they're struggling with, what they're discovering can be really powerful. So thank you for that. Let me add one other thing to that too, Don. I think people ask the question, what, why isn't the Kong Foundation still doing eShip summits? Well, first of all, we're still in a pandemic and Foundation is not doing large-scale events. But also, if you think about the role of the Coffin Foundation, what we're okay, Foundation has priorities and, and those evolve over time. And 10 years ago, the Coffin Foundation, or 15 years ago, helped start angel capital investing. And a number of years later, helped start a lot of university centers for entrepreneurship. And in, in its future, as is the nature of foundations, it will focus somewhere else. So the challenge and the opportunity we all had as people who build ecosystems was to help the Coffin Foundation understand what was needed at this point in time. And the foundation, though, it's easy to say, well, the Coffin Foundation should just keep doing all of this. It is actually not what we would want because people say to me all the time, well, if Coffin Foundation could just tell us what the metrics are for ecosystems, then that would be a lot easier. And what I say is no one in the Coffin Foundation, including myself, is in a local community building ecosystem. So you don't want us to develop the thing. You want folks that are doing the work to do that. And so could we create scaffolding to create a space where folks could come together to be able to collaborate and find each other that you mentioned? But ultimately, you know, the folks are going to figure out, for example, the metrics are the people who are out there every day trying to do that. And the foundation's role, like I think all good ecosystem builders, is what I always call the vanishing mediator. Is like you don't all local ecosystem builders don't want to spend the next 50 years of their life tending to the system. In a perfect world, you would create the environment where the collaboration and the connections and the networking and the, would unlock more of that ecosystem, but then you actually want to kind of step out, which is the story of Ord, which we'll talk about in a second. And so in a way, the foundation's work in supporting the field of entrepreneurial ecosystem building is a long-term commitment. Entrepreneur-focused economic development is a commitment, but we don't want to build a field that is entirely reliant on one institutional organization to thrive. And so the foundation has taken a step back from 
convening the ESHIP Summit. But what's great is six or seven years ago, I think you all, you and some of your friends had done a couple, an event, but there were very few other events. I think there's like a half dozen events this year bringing together people, building entrepreneurial ecosystems. And I hope that even more people will step up to continue that cross-sector collaboration too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go to Ord. Two-part question, Andy. One is how you found this little town of 2000 in North Central Nebraska. And then, of course, you've been personally involved in this story collection that we've been involved with. The foundation's provided some support along with others. We've got a number of podcasts on Ord, so our audience is getting familiar with Ord a little bit. But back to the question, how did you discover Ord? And then I'd be interested in what are some of your takeaways from being part of this project and what you've learned from Ord? Sure. Okay. Well, I'll tell it in the form of a story just because I think it's great. My mother, when I started doing this type of work, had no clue what I did. But she tried really, really hard to understand. And maybe some of the listeners who do this type of entrepreneurial ecosystem building type work have problem getting their parents to fully understand what they do. Same struggle for me. My brother worked at a furniture store. It's very easy to explain. She, she could not explain what I did. And so she tried really hard. And one day she saw an article in the Omaha newspaper about this town called Ord. And she cut it out. She gave it to me and she said, I think this is what you do. So I thought it would be of interest to you, to you. And I read it and there was a very fascinating piece in the story about the way they implemented leadership development within the community. It caught my eye and I didn't know what to do with it. So I pinned it to a board. This was almost 10 years ago. I pinned it to a board in my office and thought, I don't know what I'm going to do with this information, but I'm just going to keep it. Years later, I joined the Coffin Foundation. Years later, I'm in a meeting and someone says, we need to create some sort of case stories or, or sort of examples of where ecosystem building has been done well. And we really need to make sure one of those is a rural community. And I thought, hmm, where's that story? So I went back and I pulled it off the board and I read it. And then the story actually involves you. So then I believe we were at an event at the Federal Reserve Bank in Kansas City and we were talking and I said, do you know anything about Ord, Nebraska? And you were like, oh, funny, you should ask. I've been working there for 25 years. <laughs> and so that started us down the pathway to uh, you know, get to where we are today in the story that we're talking about. And my favorite sort of kicker of the story is that article was written by Matthew Hansen, a journalist who used to work for the World Herald and the Omaha paper, and uh, ultimately was the person who ended up writing the sort of book almost that we put together around this project. And Matthew is a proud supporter of rural Nebraska, and he's a runs a flat water free press nonprofit journalistic group that's really set up to tell stories about Nebraska. And so it's sort of all aligned, but it all goes back to my mom cutting out an article out of the newspaper. I ultimately went to Ord maybe six years ago and was really blown away. I mean, there's one thing to read about. It's a whole nother thing to go. And when I say, I'll be specific, why was I blown away? Because not because when you go, it's a futuristic small town with flying cars and whatever else you would imagine in a, in an innovative small town, but because everyone I talked to talked about the possibility of entrepreneurship and whether they were entrepreneurs and they started or built a thing, 
or they were leaders from the community who talked about the importance of it. And what was wild to me is they were all on message. Cause I just sort of, I surprised everyone. I didn't, this was not a planned visit. I sort of ended up popping in with no notice. And it was just amazing how on point everyone was. And then the moment the deal was sealed or the deal was sealed was I went to Scratch Town, which is, comes up in the story that you all published, but it's the local pub, the craft brewery. And as you walk out the door of that place, which is owned by a couple guys, including Caleb, the former head of the economic development group, there's a sign over the, the door and it says, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? And I remember seeing that and I thought, if that is what's above the door to the busiest pub in, this, in the community, despite being a small 2,100 person town and it's relatively far from much else, if that's the sign, if that's what people see when they leave the pub, or it's going to be in pretty good shape. And I thought that was, I thought that was really, uh, really, really cool. Well, and it's it's been interesting as we've begun to share the story more widely. It's just attracted lots of attention. One of our key authors was David Iaquinta with Nebraska Wesleyan University, and he's posted all of this work on, it's some kind of a platform for scholars and academics. He was telling me the other day that, and it tells them about citations, that this work is now being cited three, 4,000 times a month in various papers that people, and he's just amazed. So he's going back and looking. I was kind of blown away by it, but it's it's been fun. Yeah, you speak about your mom trying to figure out what you did. I remember a time, one of my favorite aunts, Aunt Betty and my mom, were in the car and I was driving them someplace and Aunt Betty asked mom, well, what does Don do to make a living? And of course, I'm kind of eavesdropping and and mom tries to explain it. And Aunt Betty turns back and goes, you sure he's not selling drugs? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, he gets paid to talk to people. Well, (laughs) it just didn't make sense. So I get it. That's right. That's funny. Well, Andy, we are at that magical time where we need to kind of wrap up. But first of all, thank you for being my guest. Thanks for taking time to be a partner in this work, your leadership with the summits. It's really been great to re-engage with the Kauffman Foundation, as you know. Our work would have probably never gotten started without that initial commitment from the Kauffman Foundation over 25 years ago. And so it's fun to be connected and I really appreciate the work you guys do. Yeah, I appreciate it, Don. I I really am excited for you all to bring the Ord story out to the world more. I think at the heart of it, there's two things I really encourage people to pay attention to. One is it reinforces my strongly held belief that you can build and strengthen entrepreneurial ecosystems anywhere. You don't need a a big city. You don't need huge bucks of capital. You don't need, you know, you know, the I don't even 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 the the connectivity of a a larger metro. You can build these things anywhere. The second point, which is to pay particular attention to, is that the main character in the story, Bob Stoll, who I know you've had on the podcast, his influence wasn't because he was rich. His influence wasn't because he was loud. His influence wasn't because he was pushy. His influence was because he had a different style of leadership that cultivated the conditions for more leaders and ultimately will sustain the culture and create and continue to sustain the culture necessary to grow entrepreneurs in those places. 
And I think when you read the story, especially the written piece, it's like you're waiting for the moment where the ta-da, ha-ha, here's the trick. And you're like, no, the trick is just that Bob ultimately led in a certain way that led more people to want to lead. And I think the written, the longer written piece, Matthew Hansen's story really captures that. And it's there's not a flashy secret here. The secret is that we need to lead our communities in different ways to cultivate the conditions where the talent that's already there can thrive. Absolutely. Well, and you'll be pleased. Bob was at our gathering last week with the Nebraska entrepreneurial communities and Jane was there as well as wife. And so Bob has re-volunteered to be part of their E-team in Valley County. He says, I'm so excited about where we're headed. So that was kind of fun. And the other thing that you'll appreciate is when we were doing our final report outs, each community did a quick report. And the reporter for one of the communities was a school teacher, retired school teacher, who's part of their entrepreneurship team. And she made the comment that Every building, every lot in our community is an entrepreneurial opportunity. And I thought that was an interesting asset-based kind of perspective. And she got it and she made that point. And folks were, yeah, folks were agreeing in the room that really looking at even a vacant building as an opportunity, if we can find somebody who has a dream that can go in there and do something with it, making the community better. That's right. It's a great it's a great story of of inspiration, but I also think when you really look at it, there is very specific tactical advice within that story. And again, it doesn't involve fancy buildings or hundreds of millions of dollars in capital. It involves creating the conditions where the leaders and the community members work together to support their entrepreneurs and ultimately, you know, has created a community that that I that I think will thrive and flourish and evolve in, in many different ways as it as it continues forward. But thank you so much for telling the story and then also including me, obviously, in the podcast to offer a little a little bit of support to that story. We're always game to work with you, Andy. Well, let me wrap up by reminding you of some of the resources. If you're a regular listener, you know this drill. If you're new, take advantage. Your go-to resource is energizingentrepreneurs.org. There's a lot of free resources on that site. You can join our National Practitioners Network, and it provides a comprehensive set of resources if you're trying to grow a rural community into an entrepreneurial community. Of course, our monthly newsletter, it's electronic, it's easy to subscribe to, it's easy to unsubscribe, but that's where we kind of let you know when, for example, Andy's podcast is going to drop. And of course, our podcast that you can access through any of your favorite platforms. For this particular podcast, we're going to be sharing the entire Ord story collection, and we're also finally ready to release. It is a app and web-based platform called Articulate 360 that has the entire Ord story, including the videos and the podcasts and the audios and the reports. That'll be available now. And of course, a little bit more on Andy and the Kaufman Foundation. So Andy, again, thank you for being my guest. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, all our best to you, our listeners, and your efforts to grow a stronger rural America, one community at a time. This is Don Mackey. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast.